I'm Eunice, and I'm going to be oh, I'm giving you guys the readings in here. And it's from Ecclesiastes 5. Guard your steps when you go to the house of God. Go near to listen rather than to offer the sacrifice of fools who do not know what they do wrong. Do not be quick with your mouth. Do not be hasty in your heart to, offer, to utter anything before God. God is in heaven and you are on earth, so let your words be few. A dream comes when there are many cares, and many words mark the speech of a fool. When you make a vow to God, do not delay to fulfill it. He has no pleasure in fools. Fulfill your vow. It is better not to make a vow than to make one and not fulfill it. Do not let your mouth lead you into sin. And do not protest to the temple messenger. My vow was a mistake. Why should God be angry at what you say and destroy the work of your hands? Much dreaming and many words are meaningless. Therefore fear God. If you see the poor oppressed in a district and justice and rights denied, do not be surprised at such things. For one official is eyed by a higher one, and over them both are others higher still. The increase from the land is taken by all. The king himself profits from the fields. Whoever loves money never has enough. Whoever loves wealth is never satisfied with their income. This too is meaningless. As goods increase, so do those who consume them. And what benefit are they to the owners except to feast their eyes on them? The sleep of a labourer is sweet, whether they eat little or much. But as for the rich, their abundance permits them no sleep. I have seen a grievous evil under the sun. Wealth hoarded to the harm of its owners, or wealth lost through some misfortune, so that when they have children there is nothing left for them to inherit. Everyone comes naked from their mother's womb, and as everyone comes, so they depart. They take nothing from their toil that they can carry in their hands. This too is a grievous evil. As everyone comes, so they depart, and what do they gain since they toil for the wind? All their days they eat in darkness, with great frustration, affliction, and anger. This is what I have observed to be good, that it is appropriate for a person to eat, to drink, and to find satisfaction in their toilsome labour under the sun, during the few days of life God has given them, for this is their lot. Moreover, when God gives someone wealth and possessions, and the ability to enjoy them, to accept their lot and be happy in their toil, this is a gift of God. They seldom reflect on the days of their life because God keeps them occupied with gladness of heart. Well, last year in a New York Times essay called uh, Why Are Young People Pretending to Love Work? Uh, the, the reporter Erin Griffith pays a visit to the co-working space we work. Uh, there she finds pillows that urge you to do what you love. It's a nice thing for a pillow to say, isn't it? Uh, signs calling on workers to hustle harder. And uh, seeing all this, she, she notes a recent survey that concludes that, like all employees, millennials care about their income. Uh, but for this generation, a job is about more than a paycheck. It's about a purpose. Over the last couple of weeks, we've been looking at the book of Ecclesiastes from uh, the Old Testament. 
where the teacher grapples with the question of purpose. What's life about? What's actually worth doing? In particular, what's worth doing given that you know that sooner or later you're going to die and you'll lose everything that you've ever worked for? We saw last week that while the teacher starts off in despair, by the time he gets to the end of chapter 2, he notices that actually, although he can't keep anything, because death takes it all away, he did find some joy in the moment, in the work that he was doing, in the midst of the wisdom and the pleasure, and concluded that that's actually a good gift from God. The futility of life in the face of death is not a sign that life is meaningless, but rather it's a deliberate strategy of God to drive us towards him so that we'd fear him, we'd stand in awe of him, rather than idolising things that will only ever be vaporised by death. That's kind of chapters 1 to 3 of Ecclesiastes. But in the section we're looking at today, chapters 4 to 6, the teacher starts to consider what goes wrong if you ignore what he's pointed out in the first three chapters? What if you do live for stuff instead of living for God? Well, you can have a look at uh, chapter 4, verses 1 to 6 with me. Again I looked and saw all the oppression that was taking place under the sun. I saw the tears of the oppressed, and they have no comforter. Power was on the side of their oppressors, and they have no comforter. And I declared that the dead who had already died are happier than the living who are still alive. But better than both is the one who's never been born, who's not seen the evil that is done under the sun. And I saw that all toil and all achievement spring from one person's envy of another. This too is meaningless, a chasing after the wind. What happens when we ignore what the teacher has discovered, when we live for stuff rather than living for God? Well, he points out you get all sorts of cruelty and oppression because the aim of life is no longer to live for God. It becomes about accumulating stuff. And if you want to accumulate stuff, well, you've kind of got to climb over other people to get it. The powerful oppress the weak in order to get more stuff. People are driven to strive and achieve, not out of a desire to help others, but out of envy longing to have what belongs to others. Uh, The great theologian Dr Zeus saw this decades ago. Uh, In his book The Lorax, there's a character called the Wansela. And the Wansela is a very creative, uh, entrepreneurial type, and he invents a thneed, uh, which he he tries to persuade everyone that they need. Everyone needs a thneed. And the thneed, as it turns out, is made out of trophula trees which the Wanseler chops down so that he can make more needs and more money uh, and be a success. And in the 2012 uh, movie of it, uh, which is fantastic, I highly recommend it, <laughs> one of the perks of having an eight-year-old daughter, <laughs> the Wanseler sings, there's a principle of nature that almost every creature knows called survival of the fittest, and this is how it goes. The animal that eats got to scratch and fight and claw and bite and punch. And the animal that doesn't, well, the animal that doesn't winds up someone else's la-la-la-la lunch. (laughs) So, I'm biggering my company, I'm biggering my factory, 
I'm bigger in my corporate size. Everybody out there take care of yours, and me, I'll take care of mine, 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 mine. And so, of course, the Wansler ends up ruining everything. He ruins the environment. He ruins the lives of the other creatures. He even ends up ruining his business because he ends up cutting down all the trophula trees to make fneeds and then can't make any more fneeds. He has agreed for fneed. But if only the Wansler had listened to the teacher of Ecclesiastes, then he would have known that no matter how many fneeds he sells or how much he biggers his company or how much money he makes, in the end, the biggest creature of all, the biggest monster, death, was always going to eat him for lunch. If only he'd realised, in the words of Ecclesiastes 5.15, that everyone comes naked from their mother's womb, and as everyone comes, so they depart. They take nothing from their toil that they can carry in their hands. But the problem is that most of us, like the once don't recognise that. Or rather, we do recognise it, but we kind of suppress it. We push it down. We don't like to think about the reality of death. And so, as the teacher says in Ecclesiastes chapter 5, verse 8... If you see the poor oppressed in a district and justice and rights denied, don't be surprised at such things, for one official is eyed by a higher one and over them both are others higher still. The increase from the land is taken by all. The king himself profits from the fields. See, economists sometimes talk about a trickle-down economy where everyone benefits from the rich because the rich spend their money on stuff. They buy super yachts and things like that, and provide other people with jobs and income. But actually, the teacher is a little more right than the economists, isn't he? Because in reality, the world operates not so much on a trickle-down economy as a trickle-up economy. Why is Jeff Bezos the richest man in the world? Well, yeah, he did have a great idea for Amazon. Brilliant idea. But actually, much of his wealth comes from exploiting his workers in Amazon fulfilment centres, working long hours on minimum wages with no job security and time toilet breaks. What if Jeff Bezos had listened to the teacher of Ecclesiastes? What kind of life might he live then? Well, he probably wouldn't be quite so rich, but then he probably wouldn't be exploiting his workers quite so much either. He wouldn't be trying to gain as much money as possible. Yeah, he's enormously successful now. He's the richest man in the world. But in 30 or 40 years, he'll be food for maggots. And what benefit will his wealth be then? How will it help him when he faces the judgment of God? So why will this desperation to accumulate stuff, to oppress others, when he can't even keep it? Well, without God... What else is there to do? But oppression isn't the only consequence of ignoring the teacher. Uh, As though it's just sort of bad people out there who make life difficult. No, the teacher points out that we actually do it to ourselves. We do it through isolation and overwork. So here's what he says in chapter 4, verse 7. Again, I saw something meaningless under the sun. 
There was a man all alone. He had neither son nor brother. There was no end to his toil. Yet his eyes were not content with his wealth. For whom am I toiling, he asked, and why am I depriving myself of enjoyment? This too is meaningless, a miserable business. A recent article in The Atlantic notes that, uh, contrary to what people in previous generations had assumed, the wealthy university-educated elite of today, that is, you guys, aren't working less than they were 50 or 100 years ago. On the contrary, they're actually working much, much more. In fact, in a recent survey, the women of elite American universities said that what mattered most to them was not more pay, but more hours at the office. Have a think about that again. What mattered to them was not more pay. What they wanted was more hours at the office. Now, if you're an employer, that is a dream come true, isn't it? Wow, where can I get me some of those workers? Fancy being able to pay people less and get them to work more because they're convinced that otherwise their lives will be meaningless. That is a good gig for an employer. The author of the article comments, Perhaps long hours are part of an arms race for status and income among the money delete. Well, maybe the logic here isn't economic at all. It's emotional, even spiritual. The best educated and highest earning Americans who can have whatever they want have chosen the office for the same reason that devout Christians attend church on Sundays. It's where they feel most themselves. But our desks, he says, were never meant to be our altars. Even the best white-collar roles have long periods of stasis, boredom or busy work. And this mismatch between the expectations and reality is a recipe for severe disappointment, if not outright misery. And he notes that, in fact, over the last 10 years, incidents of anxiety and depression have gone up in America. For whom am I toiling? And why am I depriving myself of enjoyment? Our desks were never meant to be our altars. Here's another consequence of living for money instead of uh, living for God. If you live for money, you get money problems. So chapter 5, verses 10 to 12. Whoever loves money never has money enough. Whoever loves wealth is never satisfied with his income. This too is vapour. As goods increase, so do those who consume them. And what benefit are they to the owners except to feast their eyes on them? The sleep of a labourer is sweet, whether they eat little or much. But as for the rich, their abundance permits them no sleep. The boxer Evander Holyfield uh, earned around £350 million over his career, uh, including £25 million for the fight where Mike Tyson bit off a bit of his ear... Um, pretty great fight. <laughs> he also had 11 children by five different women uh, and a fondness for casinos. And he discovered, like many, many others, that as goods increase, so do those who consume them. Evander Holyfield, who earned £350 million in his career, is broke. His house, his sporting memorabilia, even his Olympic medal, they've all been auctioned off. And he's got 
nothing. It's not that unusual, actually. A third of lottery winners go bankrupt, and 60% of NBA players spend all their money within the first five years of retirement. You'd think that having more money would make you more content, but in fact, it often seems to do exactly the opposite. Jim Carrey describes how he reached a place where you have everything everybody has ever desired and you're still unhappy. And that you can still be unhappy is a shock when you have accomplished everything you ever dreamt of and more, and then you realise, my gosh, it's not about this. Teacher says, I've seen another evil under the sun and it weighs heavily on mankind. God gives some people wealth, possessions and honour so that they lack nothing their hearts desire. But God does not grant them the ability to enjoy them and strangers enjoy them instead. This is vapour, a grievous evil. Jim Carrey goes on in that interview to say, I wish for everyone to be able to accomplish those things, that is to accomplish everything they've ever desired. Why? So they can see that that's not what life is about. Of course, most of us will never be as successful as Jim Carrey, uh, so we keep thinking that if I had more money, if I had more fame, if I had more popularity, well, then I would finally be satisfied. But listen to Jim Carrey. Listen to Solomon, the teacher of Ecclesiastes. He has all the wealth and pleasure and wisdom you could ever hope to have and yet he warns us, like Jim Carrey, like Jesus, life's not about this. But if life's not about this, then what is it about? Well, in this chunk of Ecclesiastes from chapter chapter 4 to chapter 6, where he's describing everything that goes wrong if you ignore his teachings, you get these two sort of glimmers of light, these two pillars that hold the whole thing up. Chapter 5, verses 1 to 7, about fearing God. And chapter 5, verses 18 to 20, about enjoying his gifts. So if you have a look with me there uh, on your handout, Ecclesiastes chapter 5, verse 1. He says, Guard your steps when you go to the house of God. Go near to listen rather than to offer the sacrifice of fools who do not know that they do wrong. Do not be quick with your mouth. Do not be hasty in your heart to utter anything before God. God is in heaven and you are on earth, so let your words be few. A dream comes when there are many cares and many words mark the speech of a fool. When you make a vow to God, don't delay to fulfil it. He has no pleasure in fools. Fulfil your vow. It's better not to make a vow than to make one and not fulfil it. Do not let your mouth lead you into sin and do not protest to the temple messenger, my vow was a mistake. Why should God be angry at what you say and destroy the work of your hands? Much dreaming and many words are vapour. Therefore fear God. In other words, don't treat God as a lightweight. Don't treat him as though he's of no significance. He's in fact the only one that can make life worth living. So don't treat him flippantly. As though it's nice to have, you know, it's really nice to have God here and have a sort of spiritual component to my life alongside my business enterprise and my Pilates classes. No, God is not a component to life. 
He's what life is about. Even worse would be to treat God as a means to an end. A sort of prosperity gospel where I promise to God that if he makes me rich or if he helps me pass my exams or he gets that cute guy or that cute girl to notice me, then then I'll go to church and I'll read my Bible and I'll pray and I'll try really, really hard to be a good person. I promise God, please, just let her say hello. (laughs) (laughs) The teacher says, don't be a fool. Don't try and milk God for stuff. Because life's not about stuff. Life's about God. And if you try to use God, promising this and that, if he'll just give you the things that you really care about, well, then you're sinning. You're going to provoke God to anger, and in the end, he'll destroy everything that you've worked for, all the idols that you've been serving and accumulating. So he says, instead of promising God this and that and failing to fulfil it, why not just shut up? Why not just listen to God and hear what he thinks? instead of you telling him how he can give you all the stuff that you think life's about. Fear God, he says. And the second pillar in chapter 5, verse 18, is about enjoying God's gifts. This is what I've observed to be good, that it's appropriate for a person to eat, to drink, and to find satisfaction in their toilsome labour under the sun during the few days of life God has given them. For this is their lot. Moreover, when God gives someone wealth and possessions and the ability to enjoy them, to accept their lot and be happy in their toil, this is a gift of God. They seldom reflect on the days of their life because God keeps them occupied with gladness of heart. Saying that when you recognise that life is about God and not about stuff, then everything else just falls back into place. If all the products of our work and pleasure and wisdom are going to be snatched from us at death, then they can't possibly provide ultimate meaning. But if they're not what life is about, then we can just relax and enjoy them as good gifts from God without the anxiety that we'll lose them one day. The Apostle Paul picks up this whole thing, this whole idea... Uh, in his first letter to Timothy. And it's worth quoting at length because he's really echoing everything that we've looked at today in Ecclesiastes. Uh, We'll pick it up in 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 6, where Paul's just been warning Timothy against people who see godliness as a means to financial gain. And he says to him, Godliness with contentment is great gain. For we brought nothing into the world and we can take nothing out of it. But if we have food and clothing, we will be content with that. Those who want to get rich fall into temptation and a trap and into many foolish and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. Some people, eager for money, have wandered from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. But you, man of God, flee from all this. Pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, endurance and gentleness. Fight the good fight of the faith. 
Take hold of the eternal life to which you were called when you made your good confession in the presence of many witnesses. In the sight of God, who gives life to everything, and of Christ Jesus, who while testifying before Pontius Pilate made the good confession, I charge you to keep this command without spot or blame until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ, which God will bring about in his own time. God, the blessed and only ruler, the King of kings and Lord of lords, who alone is immortal, he doesn't die, and who lives in unapproachable light, whom no one has seen or can see, to him be honour and might forever. Amen. And he goes on. Command those who are rich in the present world not to be arrogant, nor to put their hope in wealth, which is so uncertain, but to put their hope in God, who richly provides us with everything for our enjoyment. Command them to do good, to be rich in good deeds, and to be generous and willing to share. In this way, they'll lay out treasure for themselves as a firm foundation for the coming age, so that they may take hold of the life that is truly life. It's Ecclesiastes, isn't it? Godliness with contentment is great gain. We brought nothing into the world and we can take nothing out of it. So let's be content with what God gives us. Instead of ruining our lives and the lives of others in a pursuit of stuff that we can never keep. God is the one that life is about, he says. So rather than living for stuff, which is going to be snatched away from you at the moment of death, right at the moment when you most needed some help. Well, let's take hold of the eternal life instead, he says, that God offers in Christ Jesus. Let's store up treasure in heaven by being rich in good deeds rather than storing up treasure on earth. Because, like the teacher of Ecclesiastes, Paul Echoing Jesus recognises that living for stuff ruins life. It ruins life now. It brings oppression and isolation, workaholism, money problems and a lack of contentment. But that is nothing compared to the way it ruins life in the future. Because it keeps us from taking hold of the eternal life that can only be found in Christ Jesus. We keep clinging on to the idols that will be snatched away instead of clinging on to the true and living God who alone is immortal, who alone survives death, who alone we can hold on to as we cross that barrier from life to death and back again. Living for God actually leads us to be generous, he says to be willing to share. Because after all, if you realise that you can't keep your money, that it's going to be taken from you anyway, why not be generous with it? Why not give it away now? Why not do something useful in the present? To love others. Why be greedy when it's all going to get taken away? If it's all going to be taken away, why not be generous? especially when God has been so generous to us. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, please help us to see life and death rightly. 
Please help us to listen to you so that we might know how to live, to live in the light of death and to live in the light of the life that you promise us in Christ Jesus. Amen.